I wonder if you've ever heard of the Oxford Holy Club. It was formed in 1728 by Charles Wesley and by two other men. Then it was taken over by Charles's older brother, John Wesley, a year later. Charles was in his early 20s. John was in his late 20s at that time. Then a few years later, an 18-year-old man named George Whitfield began his studies at Oxford. And Charles Wesley eventually invited George Whitfield to join the club. The other students on campus there at Oxford labeled them the Methodists because of their devoted, systematic pursuit of holiness, which involved having a plan for every hour of the day. No hour of the day went unplanned ahead of time. Lengthy personal devotions every day, group study of the Greek New Testament, service of others, fasting twice a week, and weekly observance of the Lord's table, which was unusual for Oxford students at the time. It's a good list. The first time I heard about the the Holy Club, I remember thinking, my word, Charles Wesley, the man who wrote more than 6,000 hymns, some of which we still sing today. And John Wesley and George Whitfield, easily the, the two most prominent and influential preachers of the Great Awakening both in the UK and here in the American colonies. If this holy club produced these three men, these three giants of the faith, I thought surely it should serve as a model for all of us to emulate. That is, until I discovered more about the lives of those in the club at the time, which I'll return to in a bit. But here's the question. What does it mean to be holy? What does it look like to be holy. And what does it look like to pursue holiness? I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 7, verse 1. You can find it on page 42 in the second half of the Pew Bible. I'm going to begin by reading the first five verses. No, the first eight verses. Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord to you. Now when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem... They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Let us pray. Father, as we seek to understand your word, help us to stand under its authority, that we may hear it rightly and be changed by our hearing, made more like you in your holiness. During this time of worship, lead us to fully engage our minds, our hearts, and our wills. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, after the feeding of thousands of people with five loaves and two fish, 
crossing the Sea of Galilee during a violent storm by walking on the water, and then healing crowds of sick people when they, they reached out to touch Jesus in faith. We pick up the record in chapter 7 with these words, And when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, Clearly, these religious authorities were not numbered among the crowds who had been fed by his word and by his miraculous works. The last time that we read of these teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem, it was to challenge Jesus. It was at the end of chapter 3 when they accused Jesus of being possessed by Satan, that being the supposed reason for the supernatural healing powers that he possessed. Now they appear again. Chapter 7, challenging Jesus and his disciples in regard to the tradition of the elders, picking up the series of disputes from earlier in Mark between Jesus and the religious authorities regarding what God requires of his people, what constitutes pure religion. First, they had, they had challenged his practice of eating with tax collectors and sinners at the conversion party of Levi, the tax collector, also known as the Apostle Matthew. The name Pharisees, it means separated ones, as they thought they sought to keep themselves pure from any corrupting influence from without, which meant refusing to share a meal with anyone who was not likewise a Pharisee. The Pharisees presented themselves as true followers of God, but, but their self-imposed separation from those not walking in the ways of God meant that they couldn't bring the spiritual healing that sin-sick people desperately needed. It severed themselves off from those who needed God. Their self-serving religion showed no concern for the genuine needs of others. So that encounter following the, the feast at Levi's house was immediately followed by three other disputes over the proper understanding of what it means to be holy. The Pharisees took issue with Jesus and his disciples for feasting rather than depriving themselves by regular times of fasting. Then they took issue with Jesus' disciples for not depriving themselves on the Sabbath by abstaining from plucking heads of grain to satisfy their hunger. And then finally, they took issue with Jesus for not depriving a man with a withered hand of healing on the Sabbath. Perhaps the clearest example of, of a self-serving religion that showed no concern for the needs of others. For the Pharisees, holiness was about discipline in deprivation for the sake of self-exaltation, for the sake of being seen as righteous by others, not for the sake of being a blessing to others. But they refused to heed Jesus' words earlier in those encounters. And instead, they began plotting with some of the political leaders to kill Jesus. That's how chapter 3 ended. Chapter 7 then records a fifth dispute, this time over hand-washing. As you can probably tell, it this has nothing to do with hygiene, but rather with ritual purity. Though this was in no way required by the law of God that had been revealed through Moses. The only thing that, that comes remotely close to this washing of hands before eating, it was the requirement for the priests in the temple, in the tabernacle, to, to wash their hands and to wash their feet before offering a food sacrifice before the presence of the Lord. As nothing impure, nothing unholy can come into God's presence. But to extend that practice to, to every meal eaten by every person at any time and any place is to go far beyond what God had commanded. And to then require this of others 
is to sinfully add to God's Word. And everyone who adds to or takes from God's Word does so for selfish reasons. Think of the the temerity of these men to, to, to take issue with Jesus on this. It's clearly a big deal to them. But why? Why are they so sensitive about these traditions? Because that was their boast. Not eating with wayward sinners, fasting regularly and being seen to be a faster, not plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath and washing before meals. This was their way of practicing their righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. And thus, it was their grounds for boasting over others. And not only that, when you add to God's word with easily doable outward shows of righteousness, you will necessarily begin to so fixate on your man-made traditions that you will begin to trust in them for your acceptance with God. You will become blind to your failure to satisfy God's true demands as opposed to the ones that you have created. So for Jesus then to to challenge their their practice of these man-made traditions, it was not only to challenge their grounds for boasting before others, but it was to challenge their grounds for acceptance before God. That's why it was such a big deal to them. That's why they were so sensitive about these traditions. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, Their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. The term hypocrite is originally referred to an actor in a play who wore different masks based on whatever character they were playing at that moment in the play, pretending to be somebody they weren't. Well, these religious leaders pretended to be holy, but they weren't. Which is a part they played, a mask that they wore out in public. But outward discipline, divorced from inner devotion, dishonors God. Outward discipline, divorced from inner devotion, dishonors God. Getting back to that Oxford Holy Club from the early 18th century with John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, three towering giants of the First Great Awakening, with their methodical, systematic pursuit of holiness that garnered them the name Methodist. There was just one problem. According to Whitfield's biographer, Arnold Dallimore, at that time, not one of those men was a Christian. Like the Pharisees, their discipline was a thin disguise for the fact that they did not know God. They knew nothing of the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. They were trusting in their observance of outward rituals, both for their salvation and for their sanctification, for being made holy. And in 1734, Whitfield came to the realization that something was terribly wrong, that he was far from God, that he was still plagued by his sin, that he desperately needed to be born again. So what did he do? He did all he knew to do. He spent months increasing the intensity of his self-discipline and asceticism until his tutor was certain that Whitfield had driven himself clinically insane. 
Two years earlier, in 1732, another member of the Holy Club, William Morgan, had driven himself to madness and to death in his pursuit of holiness through discipline. It's precisely what Martin Luther, more than 200 years earlier, what Martin Luther had experienced in a German monastery as he literally tortured himself, striving to find peace with God through discipline and rituals. George Whitfield ended up being bedridden for seven weeks, and he nearly died until he reached the end of himself and placed all of his trust for salvation in Christ's righteousness alone. And in a very real sense, in that moment as he trusted in Christ and not his own works, the Great Awakening was ignited. Much as the Protestant Reformation had been ignited 200 years earlier, when Luther likewise discovered the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Holy living must be motivated by gratitude for grace already received. If you don't understand grace, you will never understand gratitude. And if you don't understand gratitude, you will never grow in holiness because your heart will never be changed. And that's the issue. It's not about the ritual purity of your hands and your pots. It's about the moral purity of your heart. But before fleshing that out further, Jesus doubles down on the sin of prioritizing tradition over God's Word. You see, it wasn't simply that the, the Pharisees and the scribes had invented and were requiring and were trusting in disciplines that were not from God. As bad as that was to invent new laws, to require them of others, to trust in them for your salvation, as bad as that was, some of their traditions explicitly required people to sin against God. Verse 9, And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Unlike the, the religious leaders that he's rebuking, notice that Jesus actually appeals to the ultimate authority for faith and practice, the Scriptures. Jesus is the new Moses leading a new exodus. Having just supernaturally fed thousands of people in a deserted place, as God had done in the first exodus, and having just supernaturally crossed the waters of a sea, as God had enabled the people of Israel to do in the first exodus, Jesus will now instruct God's people in the way of holiness, as God did through Moses at Mount Sinai. First, Jesus cites the fifth of the Ten Commandments that God delivered through Moses, honor your father and your mother. That's Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, and repeated in Deuteronomy 5.16. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. That's Exodus 21.17. The fifth commandment's the only commandment with an explicit promise attached. It says, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That shows that how clearly and extraordinarily important this commandment is, especially in regard to the context in which Jesus applies it to adult children 
providing for their aging parents. This is absolutely essential for the proper functioning of civilization. But the Pharisees were prioritizing a man-made tradition over the fifth commandment. Corbin is simply the Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word for offering. So clearly a practice had developed where, where someone could make a vow committing all of their possessions to God without actually surrendering those possessions to the temple until their death. So it's like, like having a will where everything you have goes to the temple upon your death. Sounds very godly, doesn't it? It sounds very holy. Except that in declaring something to be Corbin, the Pharisees then would not permit you to surrender it to someone else as need arose, even to your own father or mother who was in need. There could have been any number of reasons why a person would have made this unbiblical, unwise vow. Maybe the, the person found themselves in a situation like Martin Luther had before becoming a monk. He was caught in a terrible thunderstorm and he, he thought he was about to die. And so he, he made a bargain with God. He said, save me from this storm. Now become a monk. And so he did. Despite the fact that God cannot be manipulated and bargained with as paganism, not Christianity, not worship. But maybe it was like that. Save me from this situation, Lord, and I will will all that I have to God as Corbin. Or maybe a person was overcome with a genuine sense of gratitude for God's gracious gifts to them, and in a moment of genuine worship was moved to make this kind of vow. Or maybe, in a fit of anger against one's parents, the vow was made to spite them, or simply out of selfishness and not wanting to bear your parents' burdens. Whatever the case, whatever the motivation for making this vow, no such vow can trump God's demands. The religious authorities of that day were so fixated on their traditions that they had become blind to God's true demands. Revering tradition above God's word reveals an impure heart. And that's the point. Revering tradition above God's word reveals an impure heart. It's not as though that this was only a problem within first century Judaism. This has continued to be a problem throughout the history of the Christian church. From one perspective, that's what the Protestant Reformation was all about. And this is what continues to divide Protestants and Catholics to this day. Ad fontes, that was the battle cry of the Reformation. Ad fontes, back to the sources. What hath God actually said? What hath God said about the way that a person is made right with God? What is the ultimate authority for faith and practice? Is it the traditions that were supposedly handed down from the apostles outside of the word of God with no evidence whatsoever to support that claim and all the evidence pointing to the otherwise contrary? Or is the ultimate authority the word of God itself, the word of God alone? The church must bow to the authority of the scriptures. The scriptures don't bow to the authority of the church. Certainly the, the false gospel of salvation through sacrament is one glaring modern-day example of revering tradition over God's Word. But there are plenty of other examples throughout Protestant churches that, that claim the Bible as the final authority. No doubt, some of us have been members of churches that, that required of its members practices not found in the Scriptures or, or logically deduced from the Scriptures. Just to give the, the three classic examples, 
requiring complete abstinence from all forms of dancing, complete abstinence from all forms of tobacco, complete abstinence from all forms of alcohol. Any one of us can see the wisdom of such practices. And the the knowledge of our own proclivities and weaknesses may lead us to the conviction that these practices are needed for us. But then then to, to elevate these personal convictions to be on par with Scripture, to require them of others, that's Pharisaism. Now, while your revering of tradition above God's word may not lead you to explicitly call others to sin against God, as it did with the Corbin vow, it will blind you to what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law. Matthew 23, 23, the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Man-made traditions that you hold to as being on par with Scripture will distract you from your real mission. For example, Consider monasticism, monkery, holding yourself up in a monastery so as to gaze upon and and contemplate your own navel while the world wastes away in desperate need of the gospel of saving grace that has clearly had no impact upon you. That's one example of a tradition that leads to a rejection of the command to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. But there, there are more subtle ways of tradition hindering mission. Perhaps it's practices, preferences, long-standing ways of doing things that are, are pleasing to us, but are not required of us in Scripture. And when fairly evaluated, are actually hindering us from achieving our mission. Maybe these traditions are distracting us so that we spend our time and our resources off mission. Or maybe these traditions are, are putting up unnecessary obstacles to making inroads with our unbelieving neighbors. Or maybe these traditions are are hindering partnership with other biblically sound believers who would otherwise be willing to join us in gospel partnership if it weren't for these preferences that we won't lay aside. Every church must be on guard against these trappings, making sure to prioritize strategy over sentimentality, to prioritize mission over emotion. For the scribes and the Pharisees, to to let go of their man-made traditions was to become unclean, to be defiled. But what is it that actually defiles us? Jesus returns to the discussion of eating food with supposedly defiled hands, verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Or more literally, it goes into the the latrine, in one hole out another. Food is food. Whether it's ceremonially cleansed or otherwise, it can't taint you. It can't change you. And then parenthetically, Mark says this, thus he declared all foods clean. Thus he declared all foods clean. Based on what we read about the vision that was given to the apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10, long after this, 
following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, when God officially declared all foods clean. Mark's parenthetical statement here does not appear to be suggesting that it was in this particular moment that, that Jesus lifted the dietary restrictions imposed upon them by the law of Moses, but rather Mark, long after the fact, he's reflecting upon how this teaching about what defiles us applies not only to the matter of ceremonial cleansing of food, but also to the matter of certain kinds of foods being deemed ceremonially unclean. He's reflecting upon it at a later time, thus says, thus he declared all foods clean. Defilement's not about what goes into your stomach, but about what comes out of your heart. Verse 20, and he said to them, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Based on the grammar in the Greek, this appears to be a heading for the 12 sins that follow. You might say it's a, it's a summary statement of what defiles us. Our evil thoughts, our evil devisings, our evil desires. For all people who are more concerned with the tradition of men than with the law of God, for all who are fixated on externals, on, on outward performance and disciplines, let this list cut you to the heart. Don't use this list to size up those around you who you know are falling short. Use it to expose the impurity of your own heart. For that is why our great lawgiver has given us this law. Number one, sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, or porneia. This is the general term for, for any kind of sexual encounter outside of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. There is no confusion about what constitutes sexual immorality, either in the Hebrew Old Testament or in the Greek New Testament. Number two, theft. All stealing. Number three, murder. As you well know, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus extended to include angry words spoken to others. Number four, adultery. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus extended this to include even looking at someone who is not your spouse with lustful intent. Number five, coveting or greed. Always desiring more, never having enough, never being content. Number six, wickedness. I think the NIV is right to translate this as, as malice, ill will, desiring others' harm. Number seven, deceit. So all fraudulent activity and all lying. Number eight, sensuality, debauchery, usually with the implication of sexual impropriety. Number nine, envy. There's actually two words in the Greek, taken literally, evil eye. Wanting to take what others have, not simply out of greed, but out of rivalry. Just not wanting them to have it if you don't. Number 10, slander. Speaking falsely about others. Number 11, pride. Arrogance. Finally, number 12, foolishness. Perhaps a surprising closing item. It could be translated thoughtlessness. That is, not, not using your God-given capacity for understanding 
As he began in verse 14, he said, hear me, all of you, and understand. Don't be a fool. Engage your mind and your heart to understand. Understand what defiles. It's the sin within that defiles us, thus revealing our need for a clean heart. Verse 23, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The scribes and the Pharisees, they refused to understand. See, they were convinced that they knew what it means to be holy, but they were wrong. Holiness was not found in their man-made traditions. Holiness was not found in their practices of outward discipline. Holiness is found in Christ alone. But they rejected the only one who can make us holy, the only one who can make us clean. The one who alone was not infected with a corrupt, defiled heart by birth, but who willingly took upon himself our uncleanness on the cross, that we could be declared clean, that we could begin to experience a changed heart as we walk in newness of life with him. What does it mean to, to be holy? What does it mean to pursue holiness? It means to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It means to be washed clean by his blood means to hear His voice in His Word and to follow Him. Let gratitude for grace already received move you to obey His Word. This is what it means to be part of His holy club. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Word to us. By the power of Your Holy Spirit given to us to make us holy, apply Your Word to our hearts that we may increasingly walk in the holiness to which you call us, seeking justice and mercy and faithfulness, that our hearts would be near to you as we live lives of worship. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.